Who's good and who's bad? I'll tell you my secret for seeing through the deception. The Monica Perez Show starts now. This is Monica Perez, your libertarian voice on News 95.5 and AM 750 WSB every Saturday from 3 to 6. Telling you the libertarian take, the deep of center take on the news of the week, the biggest stories. I like to lay out the agenda behind the 24-7 cable cycle. And I like to tell you the principles that we need to use as touchstones for evaluating these stories. So it's different. Even if it's the same story as you're hearing all week long, it's a totally different take. And sometimes the stories that I think are the most important uh, aren't the ones that dominate the news cycle. So today I want to go a little deeper on what might seem like a broad range of subjects, but really uh, what I want to look at is the people in the news, the people who are delivering these messages to you, and what among them, who among them are are really newsmakers who are really genuine, sincere, authentic, and which ones are are there to serve the agenda, often wittingly, sometimes unwittingly. And a lot of those people I call created persons. They're created people. They come from kind of like the way uh, I feel like now we're fully in the, the created person mode where people are face jobs, and that is is oftentimes separate from the people who are really the political movers, kind of like when the monkeys were like the first manufactured boy band. And I, I don't know if the other bands during you know the early days of rock and roll were just organic garage bands, but the monkeys were the first that was like, this is a created band. Now they had they had talent, but they were put together as a you know, for a purpose, for a marketing purpose. And I feel like, so one of the big stories in the news this week was Stacey Abrams said she was not going to run for Senate. And this did not surprise me. My producer Binkley is here. It did not surprise you either, right, Binkley? Not in the least bit. Yeah, we've been talking about this for a long time. Uh, Tipped off by many different signals, but oftentimes by her own words, which we are going to get to. So... She she is, and I'm going to lay this out, too, and I have laid it out before. I should, you know, Binkley, we just were tweeting about all the episodes that we've done that include Abrams stuff. So let's, before the end of the show today, rattle off all the episodes of our show, The Propaganda Report, which you can get at thepropreport.com. The episode numbers of all the things where we talk about Stacey Abrams, because we lay out a lot of her backstory. We lay out a lot of the her own words that kind of reveal her agenda. But what her but for what I think is unique and special about her is a lot of I think many people are what I call created persons. And a lot of them, I feel like they've really separated out the face job from the politician in a way, and it took some time to do that. So I look at the period from JFK to Ronald Reagan, and I think of a lot of those presidents as being kind of old school. So they were deep insiders, deep insiders. Uh, but 
they were actual real politicians with content. So when they were put into these positions of power, uh, to some extent, they earned them. They had ideas. They wanted to wield some of the power that they had. So I'm talking like JFK. Uh, so some of these people were taken out in coups, a, a lot of them. So JFK, I believe that his assassination was a coup. I believe Watergate was a coup, taking Nixon out. Spiro Agnew, his VP, was also taken out in a coup. It doesn't get a lot of press, but his autobiography was called Leave Quietly or Else. Uh, Gerald Ford, deep insider, uh, uh, instrumental in the magic bullet theory. I think that was him and Arlen Specter. He would, they took a shot at him. Ronald Reagan was nearly assassinated. These are guys who are deep insiders, deep insiders. But for some reason, they, and I believe in, in all of those cases, there was, uh, these are, were never like lone wolf attacks or anything like that, that there's a reason for it. There's a reason for the assassinations and a lot of them and attempts assassinations. A lot of them involve failures at the, at the closest levels of the protection for these guys. So you, you got to look at this and say, okay, maybe somebody's benefiting from this. Why would, why would whoever had the power to do that or to cover it up or whatever want to take these guys out? And my, uh, thinking is that, they could not be fully controlled because they had uh, egos and desires and agendas. So, and then I feel like you morph into this day and age where the face job is like they intentionally get somebody who isn't as active as that. Like I really think like Obama and Trump. You hear stories like Trump doesn't have a computer, likes to watch TV, need ice cream, and Obama. like to watch basketball and um, hang out with Beyonce or whatever, that that there's a certain level of um, disengagement behind the scenes that I suspect takes this old concept way back from Woodrow Wilson and uh, Colonel House, his handler, to FDR, the early days of, of the of let's even call it the Council of Foreign Relations, controlling or influencing our policy. And they said from the beginning, you want somebody who's so egotistical, they would never believe they were actually being manipulated. And I I feel like they've leveled that up and taken somebody who, at the most basic level, doesn't need that much manipulation because they're not that engaged in moving the dial in a real way. But... Somebody like Bill Clinton kind of walks that line. So he's the the created person, but he had a lot of his own uh, – he brought his own abilities to the table, and his ego was connected to that ability. And and I, and I if you recall, there was a lot of kind of uh, Democratic infighting around, around him and Hillary wanting to exert their own power, and I think that stalled them. So I look at – Stacey Abrams as being that kind of hybrid, more like the Bill Clinton person, because because, you know, when people really go bananas that she's so charming and dynamic. And uh, there was one quote I saw in an article that her her public speaking is uh, verging on the poetic. And I just I just don't get that from her. So I've you got to wonder why she is uh, taking that she is getting the mantle. She is the heir apparent. She is the one. She is Neo. 
And I believe that it's more likely because she's very smart, very, very smart. And and I've seen this. I see this type of created person in uh, a group of people I discovered went to a a program of Johns Hopkins called the Center for Talented Youth, I believe. And unlike most programs that are for talented youth, this was established to study ultra-intelligent people. And I believe it was used to identify them and kind of groom them for a large role or at least get a selection, a pool of people who could be groomed for this larger role. And some of those people I've mentioned before, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Adam D'Angelo, I think his name is, who established Quora, Sergey Brin, I believe, was part of that program, the Google guy, Lady Gaga, a real cultural change agent. But when I saw Zuckerberg testifying before Congress, you know, people laugh. He's like a robot. I think he's got just phenomenal recall and the ability to uh, remember stuff. And that's why, you know, I suspect there's a chance that that's why he was tapped for that role, the kind of Pied Piper role, because it's a big role and it takes a lot of brains. And I feel like that might be Abrams' role. And so I believe she is being groomed. And I can tell you what I think the backstory is with her for the very uh, uppermost echelons of power and that she is going to, that her goal has always been to not even to win the governorship and certainly not run for Senate, but to be president. There's one quote in an article about her that says her job right now is not to win, but to lose well. That's, I mean, these are her words. And I think they're they're accurate. And I, I almost feel and we actually have a couple of clips that indicate that. And I actually think that she her um, it's almost like her White House aspirations are are a stepping stone as if she's going to be world world leader, you know, world figurehead at some point. I mean, I know that that sounds like a very, you know, inflated idea but i think there's i think if you take the blinders off you see that there are really big picture uh visions and machinations at work what do you think binkley absolutely i think that they've been in training for these roles for their entire lives and i think we have evidence for that so i want to lay that out this is not just her but i think another uh, not quite of the caliber, certainly playing a totally different role, is uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I, I think – so one thing that's true about both of these people is that their backstory has – from – I'm not – I mean, I don't know how far you can go to, like, call people a liar or whatever, but I feel like – I don't want to call them liars, but I find that – their backstories often smack of the mythical. There are elements of the myth. Yeah. So that's where I'm going with that. Uh, I want to kind of lay that out. But then I also want to demonstrate to people who I think are authentic actors. They are the most flawed because, or we know about their flaws because, uh, if they are authentic actors, they're probably not following the script. They're probably not strictly serving the agenda. And so they get demonized. They get taken out for something other than what it is that that the establishment does not like about them. 
And I want to kind of lay out how I tell the difference between created persons and the authentic actors. So I'm going to get to that after the break. You can tweet at me at Monica Perez Show. Monica Perez. Well, no one's going to top that. On News 95.5 and AM 750 WSB. We are back. This is Monica Perez. We're talking about Stacey Abrams' announcement that she's not going to run for Senate. That was not a surprise to Binkley and I. But we... But I also want to talk about her as a new kind of politician, a new kind of person, a kind of created person. And one of the the things that I think is representative of what's happening right now is this idea that the establishment has so totally been uh, discredited that Nothing really has credibility if it comes through the proper channels. So you get all of these leaked emails as the source of truth. One uh, important tidbit about Julian Assange was accidentally revealed in a, uh, a release of some unrelated material. And this is what gives things credibility. And similarly, politicians are all considered the ones who really the only ones left who can be trusted are the ones who are these outsiders. Obama's whole thing was that he was he had hope and change because he was an outsider. Trump is some outsider. He's never even been a politician before. And Stacey Abrams, I think it's very interesting. She recently changed the name of her new book, her her um, her work of nonfiction about herself from minority leader to lead from the outside. So it used to be minority leader had to lead from the outside and make real change. And then they just changed the name of the book. From what I could tell, they literally changed the name of the book to uh, how to, to lead from the outside. And that's her whole shtick. But I think we are going to lay out that she is very much not an outsider. And, and the reason she's not going for the Senate is that she still, I believe, has it, it has every intention of running for president. Here is a clip of her just last year in her gubernatorial campaign where she makes it very clear that, or I shouldn't say very clear, she makes a Freudian slip that indicates that this is, she is on the road to the White House. I believe she actually says those words. Let's hear that old clip. But I believe that as governor, the goal isn't to change the Hope Scholarship, it's to create a scholarship for low interest loans, but more importantly, for free college for anyone who has financial need to go back to the original Hope Scholarship that Democrats actually undid in 1995. That's what we can do with a good governor in the White. And I was going to go to the White House, I'm not going there yet. So that that is her kind of letting that slip but then more recently just in march of this year so not even 2 months ago she makes a similar kind of statement let's hear let's hear clip 5 i'm deeply concerned that anyone would foment brutal oppression but when i become president i'll be able to do something about it <laughs> So this is her. Yeah, this is her just a month ago. And the she has said she didn't want to be Senate because basically she wants to be 
or this was a back and forth in an interview. Monica Perez. Maybe something really cool that I don't even know about, you know. On News 95.5 and AM 750 WSB. I am your libertarian voice on WSB, Saturdays from 3 to 6. And we're talking about uh, not only Abrams' decision not to run for the Senate in Georgia this year, but the the much bigger story behind Stacey Abrams that Binkley and I have been bringing you since the beginning, which is why it didn't surprise either of us that she was not running for Senate, because she has made it clear from the beginning that she is actually running for president. And so what I'm... Uh, so, but not only her story interests me here, it's that there is, there are other people on the scene, specifically Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others, who I believe are created people. They are created uh, persons for public consumption. And I want to talk about some of those people and also some of the people who are not created people who's, who are flawed heroes, but really ultimately victims. They're, they're, it's not so much their heroism that makes me take notice. It's their, it's how they were treated as political actors under the guise of being criminals or, or other things. Most of these people end up in jail. So I'm going to reveal that later on in the show. But I want to talk a little bit more about what I mean by this idea that, that, uh, Stacey Abrams, for example, is a created person by laying out for you what her real backstory is and also what her public actions have been. And if you connect those two, I think you're going to see that that this is really, in a way, a psychological operation. But certainly, uh, I think we're being poli- manipulated by the political elite. So, Binkley, why don't you start us off with the tweet from Dean – and then and then let's get into some of the nitty gritty. All right. Dean tweets hard for any of them to fake grassroots when you look at the connections, just incubated puppets waiting to be released. Yes, that's very interesting because Stacey Abrams was part of so early. I talked about the John Hopkins Center for Talented Youth that Bryn and Zuckerberg and Gaga came out of. Stacey Abrams went to a program, the Telluride program in high school. And this program, I had never even heard of it, but boy, it's amazing. It's, uh, it's, she was in the class of 1990, which means she was a high school junior in 1990 when she was in this program. So how old is a high school junior? 16 years old, maybe? So that's when she was identified because her parents were civil rights activists, very well educated. She acts like she's the uh, um, Stacy from the hood or whatever, but she's completely not. Her parents are well educated preachers, both of them, right, Binkley? Her mom had two degrees, one in library science by the time she was in her mid-20s. And then they also both got full scholarships to go to the Emory uh, Theology School. Right. So they are well-educated, and she and her – one of her sisters is a federal judge, Mm -hmm. right? And the other is a scientist at the CDC? At the CDC. Okay. So this – they come from uh, a very well-educated family, and I don't begrudge anybody their accomplishments, trust me. But I do think uh, there's there's a very different idea from someone who clawed their way out of the gutter and somebody who 
had access to elite training and uh, had doors open through that training from a young age, age of 16. It's the Telluride Summer Program is a six-week educational experience for high school juniors that offers challenges and rewards rarely encountered in secondary school or even college. Each program is designed to bring together young people from around the world who share a passion for learning. They attend a seminar led by college and university faculty members and participate in many other educational and social activities outside the classroom. Because we believe that that we we pay for everything, don't worry about it. It says it has a rigorous selection process, and TASPERS generally go on to America's finest colleges. They uh, want their students to have a sense of intellectual vitality, interpersonal awareness, and community responsibility that will prepare them for leadership in whatever walk of life they choose. It's one of the most successful and prestigious academic programs in the nation. This is on their website. The more than 3,400 living TASP alumni include leaders in politics, journalism, academia. Those are all the, those are the three areas where I say people tell you what to do but don't actually do anything. The sciences, which is getting in there in that level, of, that um, in that realm, that category, in my opinion, education, medicine, business, and the arts. For many, the six-week Telluride Association program was the formative experience of their lives. So she went to that, and let me tell you what she went on to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's really it's really amazingly impressive. It's so, extraordinary. Uh, it really is. So if you're actually doing this, I, I get that I have this like tweep troll who just rides me relentlessly anytime I say I went to Harvard. I transferred from community college to Harvard and got a degree after two years at Harvard. Like, yeah, yay for me. I'm yeah, so yeah. happy. I just I'll, I'll tell you all day long. I want to inspire you. It's a great story. It's a great story. I dropped out of high school. Like, let's 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 celebrate that story. This guy wants me just shut up, just shut up about it. I'm like, but why? Like, why not? I have conspiracy theories. Am I some? We were. I was reading an article. You and I were reading an article saying. That conspiracy theories, this is a study, a new study, conspiracy theorists are more prone to commit petty crimes, right? Which I would just say, yes, but the big crimes are committed by the conspirators. Yes. You know, but they're described as a low education, all that kind of stuff, right? So when I have conspiracy uh, narratives that I think fit the facts better than the conspiracy narratives that are given to us from on top. They're all conspiracy narratives. Every If you look at all these villains I'm about to tell you about are the victims of political persecution. Almost all of them is just charged simply with conspiracy, conspiracy to do something wrong. They don't even have to do the wrong thing. So I like to tell people where I'm coming from so they understand that I, I'm not just – I didn't just fall up the turnip truck with the, you know, Mad Dog 2020 in my pocket. I'm – Absolutely, and your story is actually inspiring to people who might drop out of school or who might go through who uh, have struggles yeah. as opposed to people who start and are groomed <laughs> from the inside. Yeah, but even – but but if – I wouldn't begrudge this, this, uh, this pedigree of Abrams if she used it to validate her incredible skills of organization yeah. and analysis. And, I mean, she has public policy. She has everything. She has acting. She has science. She has – she was a ta- – she went to Yale Law School and specialized in tax. I mean, talk about yeah. left brain, right brain. Wow. Right. <laughs> and she doesn't woman. lead with that resume <laughs> right. when she's talking to people. She, she leads with – she leads with – I 
you know, didn't have any shoes, you know, <laughs> growing up, which is just not not believable. Or her yeah. dad like didn't have a coat or whatever. Her whole whole story is that she is excluded and rejected from everything when it's the exact opposite. She's been included. Yes. So let's say this. So yeah, I dropped out of high school, went to community college, went to the hard program, and I did not get a million internships. I did I did get the one job I need, needed at the right time. I got I have a lot of great credentials, but I and I've always thought this. It's like there is a kind of progression in old America. I don't know what it's going to be like going forward, but like my grandparents were immigrants. So both of my grandmothers were maids. Then uh, my parents were blue collar workers. And then uh, most of my brothers and sisters did not go to college, but I went to well, they went later. They went they returned to school after I went kind of inspired them, I think, even though they're all older than I am. Then, uh, and I always thought, but to really, to really make an, an impact or to be rich or powerful or any of that, it has to be the next generation after that. Like the first person to go to college is not the master of the universe. So I've just seen that as a progression, progression, clearly because her parents have graduate degrees, which puts you in another category altogether. Her parents, so she's the child of someone with graduate degrees. And and so she probably had some familiarity with how to benefit the most from academia, from the doors that the institutions you're involved in are open. She how did she? I never even heard of the Telluride program. So somebody knew about that for her to apply when she was 15. Yeah, her high school. She had to audition to get into that as well. Spelman. A Decatur High School, the art school. Indicator. Oh, yeah. She, oh, Spelman it, is the college. Yeah, right? in high school, wow. she went to a program that she had to audition to get into. Wow, wow. As an actor, that's what she was in the <laughs> beginning. <laughs> ah, <that's> rich. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know she said because she's like, I majored in acting, in science, and public policy, and tax, and law, and it's like, uh, is that real? Like, I can't. Even, but, but wow, like that's some that's some credential right there. So, wow, uh, you learn something new every day. So, all right, so let me rattle off her other, what she did when she was on track there. So this so, so her first, like, wow, what an internship. I thought was the Telluride thing as a junior, but that came from, so she was wet. So yep. to to audition for high school, you have to do that when you're in eighth grade, right? Presumably. I mean, I'm not asking that for sure, but like, let's yeah. just say that's an eighth grade. So by eighth grade, she was plugging into the big time. Yeah. And she calls her high school Avondale. It was actually, I believe, the Decatur School for the Arts, which she doesn't use that name because when you use that name, you look it up and you find out that she had to audition to get in. Right. It wasn't it's just like a regular. It's like Obama's high school in Hawaii. Like if you look for notable alum, there's a list. If you go to my high school and you look at notable alum, <laughs> there's no list. So, uh, okay, so so after that, this stuff is all kind of college era and after. And I think she first took office or was had a political position at maybe the age of 29. I can't remember. I can't remember now. So don't don't quote me on that. But this, so she's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, which is the mothership, as Hillary Clinton called it. She's a next generation. This stuff, you could dig into each one of these and find like the globalist agenda in, in every single one of them. So I can't. I'm just going to tell you the last one. I'm going to give you a little color on. 
It's the Next Generation Fellow of the American Assembly at Columbia University on U.S. global policy and the future of international institutions. Very elite. And what they talk about is how to use foreign policy for military objectives, but also for cultural objectives. So foreign policy for cultural objectives. To me, that's basically that violates the sovereignty of other countries. But uh, she was an American Marshall Memorial Fellow, which I think is Germany. Uh American Council of Young Political Leaders Fellow, which was a Department of State program, a Council on Italy Fellow. I mean, think of this internationalism that's coming out here, which is why I think that she's using the White House as a stepping stone to world leadership than the governor's mansion as as a stepping stone to the White House. So I, I feel this the list is so long. I absolutely cannot finish it before the break. So I'm going to take a break. I'll also tell you, we've done shows on her before. So Binkley just uh, put up on thepropreport.com, episode 149. And in that, you can find links to other episodes, 98, 105, 113. That really goes in depth into some of these programs and some of her uh, activities. So check that out. And I'm going to finish going through this list and give you, bring you up to date after the break. This is Monica Perez. Monica Perez. You got me excited because this would truly be both an adventure and a learning experience. On News 95.5 and AM 750 WSB. We're back giving you a little, getting you up to speed on the latest with Stacey Abrams. She was in the news this week for not running for Senate, which I think is a sign of her higher ambitions. And I was just recapping some of the stuff I've covered in previous shows. I'll finish that list right now. But then at the top of the hour, my producer Binkley and I are going to go through some of the some of the new elements of the story she tells to project an image that I think what I'm reading to you now belies that 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 or it would belie. So here. So I just rattled off half the things. And if you want to hear this show on podcasts, tune in Wednesday, go to the Wednesday morning and you will uh, be able to hear a commercial free. Thank you, WSB. So so here are a few more things. She was a British American project fellow. This is all the stuff she did in college. Uh, during uh, This is a funny thing because this British American project, so during the administration of Bill Clinton, uh, Australian journalist John Pilger attacked the BAP as an example of Atlanticist Freemasonry that many... And actually, the Freemasons do a lot of good work, but they are also considered at the uh, the top of the Illuminati. But that's that's the kind of stuff that we cover on the Propaganda Report, our yeah. podcast. So that's Thursdays on thepropreport.com. Uh, so he says, many members are journalists, the essential foot soldiers in any network devoted to power and propaganda. But she's not a journalist. She's a politician. She also did uh, the Salzburg Seminar Freeman Fellowship on U.S. East Asian Relations, the Salzburg Seminar Fellow on Youth and Civic Engagement. So she's got Europe, Asia. But the big one, the thing that I think is really uh, amazing is the UCOS Fellow for U.S.-Russian Relations. And that that 
was really a way that Henry Kissinger and his cabal were trying to influence Russian elections. I think I did a whole show on that. That might be episode 105. But I want to I don't want to rehash the old stuff. It's so it was so that that was an amazing one though. But I want to bring you up to speed and and tell you where she's at right now and people other people like that who are similarly created persons as well as some of the authentic people who uh are misrepresented in in the media right now. So this is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. This is Monica Perez, your libertarian voice on News 95.5 and AM 750 WSB. Every Saturday from 3 to 6, talking about the biggest, the most important issues of the week. And this week, an important issue, but it folds into some very big issues of our time, is that Stacey Abrams decided not to run for Senate. And a lot of people were interpreting that as her kind of uh, taking a step back. But my producer Binkley and I have been covering her for a while and fully expected her not to do that. And she almost basically said for the very reason that we think and we would take it one step further is that it's a job it's a it's a grind it's teamwork it's getting things done and that's not what she wants to do what she wants is to be an executive what she wants to do is to be a strategist like this is the thing i went to business school and everybody wanted to do biz dev biz dev business development like nobody wants to be the grinder everybody <laughs> wants to be the strategist you know so those are the hardest and most nebulous jobs to find and uh so th- this is what she says she wants and it's plausible but Binkley, you and i have found that it's not just what she wants it's her it's her assignment is to take this very large leadership role and she's been groomed for it to that I would say our the earliest evidence when you were talking about where she went to high school it I never snapped to the fact that her high school was anything special but but it was I want you to tell me about that in one second but that so she had to be aware of the importance of that and or you know be made aware by her parents or whatever and apply for it audition for it in 8th grade and she was already on the way because she has a little story we're going to talk about shortly about uh one of her early successes in fifth grade, but I didn't know this thing about, about the high school. What is the story with this high school? It's an art school that she said she went to Avondale, 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 right? but she went to the Decatur school for the arts, which it's not in existence where it used to be. It, It was located inside of Avondale at that time. So it was inside the building. But she had to audition. Oh, yeah. interesting. Now, when she says she was, what, valedictorian of that school, that's when she has the the legend of the mansion. <laughs> yeah. The story. <laughs> I, and she says that she was um, disrespected at the gates of the mansion because she got off a city bus. Right. But Zell Miller's chief of staff or chief of security or whatever disputes that. Uh-huh. And uh, and her campaign did not double down, just said, you know, but you get the idea, right? Yeah. <laughs> but but that's where, is that, do you know if that's the high school that she was, the why she was at the mansion was with that high school? I'm fairly certain because I've seen them, like, praise their alumni, the 
Decatur School for the Arts, right. and I've seen them praise her. And she's in it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so my point, my bigger point is that she's being groomed for something, and she's on that. I think she's the heir apparent to uh, Obama, and that she will, that he, you know, his experience, maybe he's not going to be president of the world, but that she would then kind of take it one step further, stand on his shoulders. And so the White House to me feels like a stepping stone for her. So she says she wants to be the executive, but it's really that she needs to be the, you know, the face of it all that, mm-hmm. that she is. So, and this, so she really, she exploits the identity politics in her own words over and over again, she will say, but I see that she exploits the identity politics in two ways. One is it benefits her personally, but she will, she will say that over and over again. And it, and it sounds like she's being, uh, that she is being Machiavellian there and using that. But I actually believe she says that to make it feel like she's somebody who needs to, Get that hand up. Who needs to have the affirmative action thing? But but I but she does not. Like she doesn't need laws, like affirmative action laws. She has her own inside track. So she she acts like this is her tool, but really it's her assignment. It's her assignment. So she does voter suppression. She does her assignment is to maximize the the importance, the value of identity politics. And she really embraces that and and promotes it. And one of the things I want to uh, – so let's fast forward to today where just in March, you you she did a long – would you show me? What is this thing? She did, it was a long thing that had very few views on YouTube where you pulled these clips from. What is that? What? Where is she speaking? What's the story behind this? The Chatham House. So the Chatham House is the royal is the home of the Royal Institute for International Affairs. It's the it's the mother of the Council of Foreign Relations, which is its U.S. arm, and she is a member of the CFR. And this is when people talk about globalism. This is ground zero yep. for globalism. This is where Cecil Rhodes and his Roundtable launched it all. Rhodes Scholarship, Rhodesia. He owned De Beers. Like this is the guy who said he wanted to reinstitute the British Empire by basically underground making the entire world speak English and adopt social democracy, which is what we have. And yeah. So it's been very effective. They, so if you were going to say these are the people, the them, this, this is, is the, the them. them. <laughs> this place is sanctioned by the queen, these panel discussions are. Okay. So I, I didn't even know the queen was in on it, She's but I, I it. have to believe it. <laughs> okay, so all right. So here she is in March speaking to this group. And let's I, – I want to skip around here. Like some of the stuff is, is – Let me tell you the subject of it. Oh, yeah. It, it's the subject of identity politics and how it benefits democracy. Oh, in all the clips that you sent me of this, I didn't actually find the answer to that question, how it benefits democracy. Because one of the things that's really puzzled me – I mean I guess you'd have to define democracy in a certain way. What puzzles me is her her – Thing, her uh, particular raison d'etre or whatever is that is this voter suppression idea. And she went up against Kemp for the governorship here in Georgia, and she has been crying about 
the voter suppression thing all, all along, whatever. <laughs> and she picked the perfect candidate. Yeah. You know, that's what makes me wonder if he was selected also to be that foil and that and that. Remember, she said, "My job is not to win, but to lose well." Right. So, so he might not even have any idea the role he's playing, but. He's the perfect person to cast credibility doubts on about uh, uh, the fairness of an election because he was the sitting secretary of state who that is the guy in charge of elections during this election. And our favorite local activist, Garland Favrito of Voter GA, filed a criminal and his organization filed a criminal complaint against him for irregularities in the handling of the 2016 election and its aftermath. So this is a guy uh, Kemp, who you could really go after for that stuff. And and weirdly, during the entire campaign, she never went after him for that. And that stuff that they refused to investigate, the prosecutor refused to prosecute. And uh, and I, to me, that was absolutely low hanging fruit in a real knockdown drag out campaign, especially for somebody who says they care about the democratic process and voting rights. So that that says to me, it is it isn't about the way I would define democracy, which implies equal representation of all of all the people, it's about democracy as a way of uh, empowering this lever of identity politics, which is why she she doesn't care about actual uh, questions about the legitimacy of the vote. She cares about making sure that the the identity issue is very powerful. Maybe maybe the way lobbies, you know, um, unions, you know, are so powerful because they can bring so much to the table. And, and I'm sure it ties to this concept, your uh, Sarsour clip that you've played for us, collective vote. Remember, collective vote. Don't yeah. vote for who you want to vote for. Vote for who we tell you to vote for. Incarcerated people, uh, illegals, whatever, undocumented people. So I think it all goes hand in hand with that. So let's, let's play. This is actually... I, I almost never want to hear what the questioner has to say, but the question is, I find the question very interesting. So let's play the question and then we'll get to her answer. What happens in politics when identities clash? And on the progressive side, even within the progressive side, identities often clash. So you mentioned bathroom bills in passing. You know, there's a big fight in America between trans people and, and feminist women um, over uh, that issue. Uh, and it seems to me that if your political disagreement is rooted too much in identity, then that's a bit of a dead end. Because if you and I disagree on something, and we both say we're disagreeing because of our identity, there's frankly nowhere for us to go. Um, you can't persuade me, I can't persuade you, because neither of us can change our identity. And at that point, you need to appeal to a bigger story. So I was wondering if you could say something on that and about the, the difference between kind of good identity politics and bad identity politics. That is very revealing, because that, to me is the entire reason that identity politics exists because it's it's irreconcilable you cannot change a person's identity so if you couch conflict in identity it is irreconcilable it is and and that divide and conquer theory is what underlies this ideology of tyranny. You absolutely, if you can separate the people out, especially in a democracy, so they cannot reconcile, whereas liberty and justice for all is a is something that people could band together to work for. You have to identify what it is that 
that that creates the conflict that the what your goal is so i want to play her second clip do you have any anything to add to that yeah uh, people are they don't notice this yet they're trying to push the same movement so i think this is very what do you mean like the um he talked about the lbgt versus the transgender right they're they're pushing for the same movements yet one of them might get left out well, the, so I would say that's part of it, too, that they want to keep their own people divided yeah. so that they really can never get the power. So I feel like at the at, at the party level, it's totally under control on the Republican and Democrat side. Whoever the establishment wants to get the nomination, I believe, actually does get it, including Trump. But they these guys will. They need their own people to also have conflicts so that you can say, hey, you guys are never going to work it out. So just vote for who I tell you to vote for, and you keep your business to yourself. Don't split the ticket. Just keep it together. So I want to play her response to that after the break. This is Monica Perez. Monica Perez. They think they control the galaxy. I disagree. On News 95.5 at AM 750 WSB. So... We just played a clip of a guy at the Chatham House in England asking Stacey Abrams a question saying identity politics ultimately leads to a a stalemate because you can't change your identity. And if your interests are so wedded to what makes your identity unique, you really can never come together. So what do you do then, he says. Then you need – what did he say? Then you need to – to get people going on something else. I don't, I, a bigger story to unite them. Yeah, okay. Bigger story to unite them. So he's acting in good faith thinking that she is wants to unite. But but this identity politics is the foundation of divide and conquer, in my opinion, because it cannot be reconciled. Whereas if your, if your notion was the greatest good for the most people – so even Ron Paul, who is a libertarian based on his uh, – his principles of do not steal and do not kill said in his parting speech in Congress, I have concluded over these many years that the greatest good for the most people comes in from liberty. And I've always felt that that Ron Paul fights for liberty, but what he's really after is justice and that liberty and justice go hand in hand, as we've always been taught. But but if the idea is the most good for the most people, identity politics is probably not the way to go. But it's funny that she that's what I thought when he was asking this question. And she highlights a similar concept in her answer. So let's hear that now. I do know that there are going to be moments where there is a clash, but often the question becomes, does that clash benefit more people or not? And how real is that clash when played out writ large? The, and just to use a very, you know, to use the transgender bathroom example again, when that happened in North Carolina, they lost hundreds of millions of dollars in economic access. The easiest solution is what we've seen in a lot of spaces. For those who have normative gender standards, you have bathroom one, bathroom two, and then you have a transgender bathroom. There are economic solutions that may be uncomfortable or more expensive, but they actually can help resolve those deeper concerns. But the nature of society is the nature of figuring out when identities clash, how do you provide the greatest access to the greatest number of people? No one is ever going to be perfectly satisfied, and no one's identities are ever going to be fully met and fully acknowledged. 
But identity politics demands that we have the conversation, and that's the progress I'm looking for. So for me, the dividing line there is that that there is common ground, and that should be the parameters of what the government does. And that that makes you recognize the limited sphere of government coercion, that it has to be limited to what we have in common. And outside of that, it should not be a coercive environment. And what we have in common, generally, I think it's a legitimate dispute. Do we have in common this need for liberty and this desire to pursue our own happiness? Or do we have in common the need for food and clean water? You know, I can see that being the ideological divide. But but as she points out, identity is irreconcilable. And you cannot... You cannot fit everybody together, but you can fit everybody together in necessities of self-defense and food. I would like to point out that her supporters would not, the bulk of her supporters would not be okay with that answer if they heard it. All right, I'm going to let you tell me why after the break. This is Monica Perez. Monica Perez. Don't hate the player, hate the game, son. On News 95.5 at AM 750 WSB. We're back. This is Monica Perez. We are talking about the we're getting deep on the philosophy of identity politics and the purpose, specifically in the context of how Stacey Abrams is not only I mean, I think she presents herself as somebody who is benefiting from it. But really, I don't I don't I think she's above that. I think that identity is actually the identity she's presenting as defining for her a black woman uh, from the South is is a lower level on the kind of three dimensional chessboard. If you go back and in any kind of deep state reading uh, or, or who's really running the world kind of thing, you always see, especially mid 20th century, that. The it's this international power elite. It's a and and its defining characteristic is that it is above national loyalty. So they're loyal to each other. They work together. This is the theory. Anyway, this is kind of the grand conspiracy idea is that no matter what culture or creed or nation or anything like that, they are all united at the top to achieve central power, central uh, uh, control and that they want to control the entire money supply. I mean, look at how Venezuela is brought to its knees by the lack of access to international markets. Same thing with Iran. Like that, those are the levers of power. And this international elite is above uh, personal identity outside that identity of being the elite first and foremost. I believe she is in that category. So she presents herself as having an identity that's relatable to the people that she wants to bring on her side for policy reasons. But the policy reasons are are her goal as her assignment from on high. If you listen to the beginning of the show, you heard like where her training comes from and how she is truly a a credentialed, um, trained member of this international power elite. And I want to so Binkley. So we we just played a couple of clips of her at the Chatham House, which is the mothership of the CFR, which is the mothership of the the U.S. elite. And in the actual uh, topic of this speech, discussion, panel, whatever, was identity politics. And the guy asked her, well, if once you once you get down to where there are no common interests and you get down to the real true the thing that makes different identities different identities are the things that separate us. That's irreconcilable. 
then what do you do? And she says, well, you can't please everyone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I say, yeah, that's so then if you're really saying the greatest good for the most people, let's talk about what that really means. And I cited Ron Paul's concept that liberty is the thing that gets the greatest good for the most people. And for me, I would say what you really want is justice. And I agree with Ron Paul that liberty yields justice and that it's not just the greatest good for the most people in that sense, but that it is it is it is the one good kind of cosmic moral good is to have uh, the is to have justice, individual justice and the liberty to act and suffer the consequences, but but contain the consequences to yourself. So you can't act and have other people suffer those consequences. But if you act and your consequences are your con- – that is justice, not social justice where everybody gets food, which everybody should have food. And I believe that we were at the technological place in human development where everybody absolutely could have food in a state of liberty and even maybe even in a state of tyranny, everybody could have food. But, like, that's where we are. And But she's saying – She's approaching it from a little bit of different. We should play that clip again, even though it was kind of long. I don't know. What do you think? You yeah, play it again. All right, let's play it again. I do know that there are going to be moments where there is a clash, but often the question becomes, does that clash benefit more people or not? And how real is that clash when played out writ large? The, and just to use a very, you know, to use the transgender bathroom example again, when that happened in North Carolina, they lost hundreds of millions of dollars in economic access. The easiest solution is what we've seen in a lot of spaces. For those who have normative gender standards, you have bathroom one, bathroom two, and then you have a transgender bathroom. There are economic solutions that may be uncomfortable or more expensive, but they actually can help resolve those deeper concerns. But the nature of society is the nature of figuring out when identities clash, how do you provide the greatest access to the greatest number of people? No one is ever going to be perfectly satisfied. And no one's identities are ever going to be fully met and fully acknowledged. But identity politics demands that we have the conversation. And that's the progress I'm looking for. It's funny because I caught something new listening to it a second time. She says a clash. Does the clash benefit more people. And I say the clash is what benefits the elite, that that she uses that litmus test, but not for the people, but for the elite. But you were saying something before the break, so you can comment on that, but then I want to go back to what you said before. A large portion of her supporters would not be okay with that answer. With what? Answer. Specifically, the part about transgenders having to have a third bathroom. Her supporters, they use the hashtag, and this is straight from Linda Sarsour, trans rights are women's rights. That very much comes into conflict with that. If trans can't use the women's bathroom, is she saying they need yeah, to have their own bathroom? Yeah, I was surprised bathroom? she said that it would be uh, a third bathroom. Yeah. I was surprised at that. My position on the bathrooms is equipment should match equipment. Right. I, I, <laughs> because otherwise there's a sanitation issue. Her solution there is is perfectly reasonable, but the way she uh, rallies people is not that message. That's interesting. Well, we have seen that she puts different messages out depending on her audience. So we played earlier two clips, one of her saying this road to the White House, oops, I mean governor's mansion, yeah. from like a year ago and then just from a month ago from – 
I think this speech, she said, oh, I'll take care of world oppression or whatever when I'm president. Ha, ha, ha. And everybody laughs. But in between that, a couple of months ago, some regular interviewer said to her, oh, looks like you're on the road to the White House. She said, he said, looks like you, you want to be president. She said, president of my HOA, maybe. Yeah. So she and she actually talks about crafting. Doesn't she talk about crafting her message to the audience, to what people want to hear? I actually we we've played that extensively on some of these past episodes that we've done. So if people look at the most recent posting on thepropreport.com, they'll find links to all of the stuff we've done on the governor's race here, Stacey Abrams. So I found that I just found that very interesting that they the way to talk about identity politics as a way of getting the most good for the most people, that just doesn't even make sense to me because it, it, the most good for the most people, you have to identify the common interests of human beings. And the common interest – so to me, race is superficial. Gender, it's, that stuff is – I mean, I, I, I believe sexuality is fundamental. But as far as civil law, the stuff that really – that really matters, such as the protections in our Bill of Rights, are absolutely human. Those are the human rights. You know what I mean? Those are the rights that each one of us absolutely needs. The right to trial by jury. I mean, there are definitely radicals who would say, no, that it's that you don't get that right, that you have to that that you have to crack eggs to make an omelet. But I think if you want to talk about the most good for the most people, I would say it is a it is an uncompromising defense of the of the ability to protect yourself from those who have physical force. That's what I would say would be the most fundamental and we all share that. Every single person could have that if we have an unyielding defense of the protections in the Bill of Rights, for example. But the people I want to talk about at the top of the hour are not do not enjoy those protections. So I want to uh oh we have to play the fifth grader essay. Oh the, oh, the fifth grader essay, yeah. Yeah. So I think we have to play this clip. This is this is a story that she has as part of her legacy. So in eighth grade, she was auditioning for the high school. And her parents were civil rights activists with graduate degrees. And she tells this story. Uh, in the, and it just doesn't. To me, it smacks somewhat of uh has mythical elements to it, not strictly by the book. So let's play it, play the clip, and then we'll talk about it. Let's I won an essay contest as a, as, as a fifth grader, and my dad took me to go pick up the $50 check, which at that point seemed like I'd won the lottery. <laughs> and so he's sitting in the car, and he tells me to just go in and grab it and get my award. And so I run inside, and I'm still inside, and he finally comes in to find out why I'm there. And it's because the woman in charge refuses to give me my award. She didn't believe I was the student who won it. And she said, well, she was demanding ID. I'm in fifth grade. I don't have ID. 
but my name is Stacy Abrams, and she refused to believe that I was the author, and, and she was quizzing me on what I'd written in my essay. Now, she wasn't the judge. She was simply the person, the PTA member who was sitting at the table to give me the money, but she took it upon herself to question the validity of my identity because I didn't fit her normative standard of who should be winning this award in Gulfport, Mississippi. That's fifth grade. I can give you a litany of stories. And what happens because of stories like that, either you become more inured to it or you bend into it and you become overwhelmed by it. I'm fairly obstinate. So, and, and I was a good writer, so I knew it was mine and I wanted my money. And <laughs> But what that has led to is a stronger response from me because the two things I understood, my, when my dad, who was very angry, took me home, he and my mom had a conversation with me, and it wasn't, you know, sort of a sitcom conversation. It was, you know, this is going to happen, and you just, you need to know what to do, and you did what you were supposed to do, which is you don't let someone tell you who you are. That has been my mantra ever since. There's a lot there that, why are you, why are you That noting? is insidious, in my opinion. Okay. She says that that woman's normative standard of who should win that award, she didn't believe that that would be her. That was someone who was there who had a child come up and said, give me money. She She's supposed to get an ID from anyone who wins a contest. Of course. I mean, and I think she was – it's completely plausible that she was quizzing her to let her get away with not yes. having her ID. And to project that negative, insidious yes. intent is terrible. Yes. She's imputing base motives on that woman. And the, and the first time I ever even heard that expression. I was reading Witness by Whitaker Chambers, highly recommend. And he said one of the things his mother taught him, I actually for a while had on my wall the things his mother taught him. One was to never impute base motives on somebody. You cannot, it is downright unchristian to impute base motives like that. And it, and it just, and if I had done that to my kids, first of all, they wouldn't have done it. They wouldn't have gone in by themselves, and they right. would have come out. They wouldn't have been – I wouldn't have been angry. They would have been angry at me, like, Mom, why would you do that? You need an ID. Like, exactly. how could you do that to me? Let's, let, let's wrap this up after the break, and then let's move on to uh, some of the people you don't know the, the, anything about their real story, and you should. We're going to do that at the top of the hour, but we'll finish this up after the break. This is Monica Perez. Monica Perez. Evil does seek to maintain power by suppressing the truth. On News 95.5 and AM 750 WSB. We're back. So, yeah, we just played this thing of Stacey Abrams telling this story about when she was a fifth grader and her dad sent her in just to some place to get an award she won, which I thought was weird. Like, if there's a check, either you have an award ceremony or they drop it in the mail. But... You know, maybe she went in and maybe the entire story is completely true. But her her upshot is the woman said I needed ID to pick up my check. And when I didn't have ID, she started asking me questions about the essay I wrote to win the check. And she did that because of the way I looked. And I just don't get that A to B to C. Me either. But that that projects oh. to her audience that everything is done because of the way they look. Well, this is what I don't like about that kind of thing, because to have that idea that there's nothing you can do, it's all about your identity and other people's views of you is very disempowering. It's disempowering. But it was interesting. You made a point at the break that uh, she said my dad was angry. When I came out, the dad was saying, and so, but in my experience with my kids, my kids would have been angry with me. Yeah. Like, Mom, I didn't have an ID. Why couldn't you just park the car and come in with me? That's crazy. I'm 10. You know, um, 
but you were saying that to the extent every detail there is true, that you think I think he did it on purpose. He might have could have done. I found old newspapers of him doing stuff like that when she was a kid, getting arrested. Wow, and uh, because he was civil rights activism, putting himself in a situation that he knows is going to be able to blow up into a narrative that he can spin. Oh. Method activism. There you go. That was Byron's <laughs> glossary term when he called it on the weekend. Yeah, method activism. That's exactly what it is. So, uh, yes, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised. And she said after the event, her parents sat down and told her this is going to happen all the time. And it's the same thing with the Starbucks when they when they 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 had a training session after the Starbucks incident where they said, "Hey, this is much worse than you think," and every. Everybody hates each other. It's like, how is that going to yeah. make things better? This was her training. Her dad was training her. Right. And and the more you instill a real belief in this injustice, the more of an activist you're, you're going to have. And you can do that very young. She talks about the importance of getting to kids when they're very young. Mm-hmm. So let's switch gears at the top of the hour and uh, – um, if you want to hear, if you want to go back, there's a lot of stuff to digest. Go to thepropreport.com. You can get all our episodes and our links. Thanks. This is Monica Perez. Please take my hand. Now open your mind to me. Please open your mind. Open your mind. This is Monica Perez, your libertarian voice on News 95.5 and AM 750 WSB every Saturday from 3 to 6. We are talking about created persons versus authentic people and the authentic people who are actually trying to make a difference are often demonized, villainized, jailed, or killed. I'm serious. I should have spent the whole time on that. But I also like to cover the biggest news of the week or the stories of the week that have more to them than you're being told. So my producer Binkley and I get numerous requests all the time for our research and what we've laid out on Stacey Abrams and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So every once in a while we compile, we we just stack up all the things that we are learning about these people that fit with their image or don't that flesh out their backstory but isn't common knowledge. So when Stacey Abrams decided not to or said she decided this week not to run for Senate, we knew that was her decision, I mean, like months ago. So we decided this would be a good time to give an update on her, what she's been up to, a little refresher on her backstory, some references to past shows we've done. And I and uh, if you want to hear this show, go to thepropreport.com Wednesday and you can uh, hear a commercial free, which is always a treat uh, if you and we also have links to the older shows there. So what I also want to just give a little update on uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which I have to say, I. Uh, when I mean, I know obviously we all know a lot of people with Hispanic surnames, and people, when referring to her because it's such a mouthful, people were also calling often calling her Cortez, and I was like, that doesn't everybody know? It's not the the second name means nothing, and I never met anybody in my entire life who actually used it. You use the first name, so I was like, her name is Ocasio, 
Like that is her last name. And if you look back, her original Twitter handle was okay, just Ocasio. And she completely scrubbed and purged that. Like there's nothing there. So I believe they did that because she is creating quite a legacy that is absolutely in disingenuous at best. And, uh, so I think this is all part of how I, – I guess they – maybe they call it sheep dipped. I, I think that expression might apply to this where a spy – a sheep. I guess if you dip a sheep and sheep dip, like all the critters run out and you clean it out. And so she's been purged. Her resume her, – don't you think that's – Yeah, she had the greatest resume ever for a 20-year-old, and they purged it and turned her into a bartender. Yeah, yeah like, like Stacey Abrams. Like you would think that you would say, hey, man, yeah. you know, like I – represent you know i am i am here i i worked for ted kennedy in college you know like i i have all these internships i have all this stuff like i'm i gave a ted talk when i was an <laughs> undergrad this yeah. is ocasio cortez if she if everyone has a right to be called yeah. what they want to be called so I, i'll do that uh but she so she so she is giving ted talks and and instead she's like who me me, Sandy from the block. They must have interviewed her. I can't that even bar. do her accent. Doing you know, she like she does like ethnic accents depending yeah. on her audience. I can't even make fun of her doing that, but she's she's pretty <laughs> good at it. She probably had some acting in her background too. Can you imagine inter- interviewing her at the bar? Like you're you're way overqualified for this. You should you should yeah. Be... Like I saw your TED talk. <laughs> like what? Yeah. I heard you on NPR. Like what are you doing here? So I want to just talk about her timeline a little bit. Uh, yeah, you know what? Let's. I have this <clears throat> clip. I'm not sure I have the order of my clips in my mind. I think it's clip one. Of so this is this is what we are to believe about our dear Sandy Ocasio. Let's hear clip one. Back in 2016, we put out a call for nominations. We got over 10,000 nominations. Out of those 10,000 nominations, we found Alexandria. My brother told me that he had sent my nomination in the summer, but I was like literally working out of a restaurant. And I was like, there's no way. I worked in restaurants for seven years. I never worked out of a restaurant. I have never said I worked out of a restaurant. So, yeah, so, so, so let's think about that. In 2016, the Bernie Sanders coalition or whatever it is for a new Congress looked at 10,000 resumes and unbeknownst to our dear Miss Ocasio, her brother sent it in and OMF gosh, I won the lottery. But she was an organizer for Bernie already. (laughs) It's such a lie. (laughs) So... I mean, it's possible that there were 10,000 organizers for birdies, but but that they literally put put probably a 10-man crew on this for a week and found her resume, which is what it sounds like. It's like a contest? What kind of selection yeah. process yeah. is this? So, so I want to go through her actual timeline and see if that, that 2016 – yeah, that's true because in the timeline – so that clip I just found – in the timeline here that I ha- I've been compiling over the months, it says 2016, AOC works for Bernie Sanders, and her mother moved to Florida for tax reasons. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's just so great. Okay, so, all right, so she was born in 1989. So you can chime in with anything you have. Like, I, 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 there's, I could fill in the blanks on all this stuff, but let's just, like, 
He's now, okay. So on my timeline, I had she was born in 1989, and then the next significant event was 1994 when she moved to Yorktown Heights. But even that's a lie, right? That's true. <laughs> so she, I said she lived in the Bronx for five years because that's her story. Yeah. But you found something different, no, right? her family bought a house in Yorktown when she was two years old. There were people in Yorktown that were trying to interview her because it's like somebody from our hometown is doing something great, and they could not get her to contact contact them back. So they started looking into the records. She was there since she was two years old, not five years old, and that's important. Yes, that's important. How do we know that's important? Because Stacey Abrams tells us that you got to get children from age zero because from ages three to five is when the brain is formed. Yeah, she says four is too late. I believe that's a quote, and and it's funny because she her she was born in Madison, Wisconsin. To, so I don't know what her parents' backstory is. I don't know how they ended up in Madison, Wisconsin. That's but, where her mom went to school. But where was her mom from originally? Mississippi? Mississippi. Okay, so then they moved back to Mississippi at a certain point. But I was wondering when, because if four is too late, then then she's from Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so Cortez was in an upper-class, well-to-do area when she was being – her personality was being I saw a picture of her house, and it looked rather small. And I uh, I grew up the one – the counties are kind of like affluence-wise, geographically removed from midtown Manhattan. And I grew up in where like the firemen and union guys were, the blue-collar guys, the whatever. So I lived in – grew up in Rockland, the next county up. And I always looked to Westchester like, wow. You know, in awe. So even if she was not uh, personally rich or whatever, she went to that school where you – the better the better places have the better schools, especially mm-hmm. in that neck of the woods in my experience. But anyway, regardless of the schools, why would she say five? Why not say two, right? Why would you embellish that? So that your most formative, impressionable years are surrounded in that yeah. melting pot To make pot it feel like you are a girl from the Bronx, yes. which is very important to her. It's very important to her to be the girl from the Bronx, and she's really riding on that, I can say. So let's play that clip. Uh, let's play clip four. You know, the president is from Queens, and with all due respect, half of my district is from Queens. I don't think he knows how to deal with a girl from the Bronx. I wonder what girl she's talking about. Yeah. I mean, she's Sandy from the block, right? <laughs> it's like, no, she's <laughs> Sandy from the tree-lined street. <laughs> so she, okay, so I know this stuff sounds nitpicky, but you know what? Why would they, it's like what that caller said when he called into the show, like, why do they have to make stuff up if if the image is valid, if the legacy is valid, if your point of view is aligned, why, why are you making anything up? Why why don't the facts align? And if they don't align, correct them. Yeah. You, you know who fits her story far more than she does? Oh. Howard Schultz. Really? He he grew up in uh, public housing in in wow. New York. Yeah, in New York, and he his father. Um, he had a rough relationship with his father. He got himself a scholarship to college playing sports, and he didn't have much money. Wow. He wasn't like dirt poor, but right. um, yeah. And he That's pulled himself That's the real up. deal. Right. That's a scrapper, yeah. as they say. Yeah. Very good. So, all right. So she, in 2006, out of this, so she was still in high school. She, just like Stacey Abrams with Telluride, I believe she was a junior because she graduated in 2007. She got a John F., I think it's John F. Lopez internship. Yeah. Which is uh, a kind of it's activist training school, essentially. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. And it's for Latinos and Latinas. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Okay. So, so this is the thing that that I think I used to think those 
kinds of programs were the same as affirmative action, where you're just trying to give somebody a hand up, which I have to say when I look around, I'm not talking about like the laws about it, but I really don't have a problem with that, of trying to give somebody an extra advantage because I'm telling you from my perspective, what I was telling you before about like if your parents went to college or their parents or graduate school, whatever, it has a profound impact on you. Now, the generations, you can work your way out of it. So I'm not sure like how far the legacy of slavery lasts. I just don't know. And I don't know how like voluntary African immigration kind of helps people uh, rise above that stigma. I don't or 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 reinforce it. I really, really have absolutely no idea. I'm not great at sociology. But I will say for real, it is true that 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 the money that you have, the education you have, your parents understanding of the echelon that you aspire to makes a huge difference. Yeah. So uh, let all right. So then it starts getting really interesting. So let's take a quick break. And do you have anything? Okay, let, no, let's do one more. So her father in 2008, so the year after she's in high school, her father dies intestate, which means without a will. And that caused all sorts of problems. Now, <laughs> my father definitely did not need a will. Like when I hear like he didn't have a will, it's like, but that implies stuff, you know, bequests. So I don't, uh, so let's talk about the internship, at, about the um, intestate and the implications of that after the break. This is Monica Perez. Monica Perez. Bring big drama show. Let's go. Let's do it. On News 95.5 at AM 750 WSB. We're back. It's Monica Perez. I'm going through the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez timeline, and I'm going to just speed it up. This is the timeline, and then we can, as we go along, Binkley and I can point out, like, what just doesn't make sense about Sandy from the block being a bartender uh, just gobsmacked when her brother presents to her the congressional you know, that she's you're running for Congress. What? Oh, my no, gosh. No way. Oh, my gosh. Like, I'm literally like counting my tips right now <sighs> to clear my schedule. <laughs> so, OK, so in 2008, her father died. So that was, uh, I think, her first year of college. So a lot of her legacy comes out of. So I, there's this article, one of the inaugural articles for her. So she decided to move back to the Bronx immediately after graduation. It is here that her situation. So she decided to move back to the Bronx immediately after graduation from college. This is from Millennial Politics. It says it is here that her family situation took a turn for the worse. Mr. Ocasio, unable to afford health insurance. So it wasn't there. He wasn't in the Bronx and it wasn't at that time. This was four years after that. Unable to afford health insurance, lost his battle with lung cancer, leaving his family without a financial safety net. So I wonder what difference it made that he did not have a will. With the looming threat of losing the family home, Alexandria helped support the family as a waitress. So no mention of bartending until later. I literally believe that Austin, the Jeopardy star, who is the savant New York City bartender. Very cool. It was I can find no references to her story changing from waitress to bartender until after Austin was a big winner at Jeopardy. I'm honestly true. I really think these tell the truth. I think these these things are not insignificant. So she uh, worked 18-hour shifts just to ensure her family had a roof over their heads. Now, I wore waitress for many, many years, and I don't think I ever even worked in a restaurant that was open 18 hours. But anyway. Is her brother older or younger? Mm, I think he's younger, but I don't know for sure. 
I don't know. It's one thing to talk about these things in news articles and another thing to live this life. Alexandra, that's a quote. I think that's from her. Alexandra was eventually faced with the reality. This one I call B. Well, the whole thing is BS. Alexandria was eventually faced with the reality of being unable to keep her family financially afloat on a minimum wage salary. What's wrong with that? Well, you make tips. Right. Wages just don't make – they don't even make minimum wage salary. You make basically no salary. She's cute. She's charming. But I'm just saying yeah, – but yeah. it's not a minimum wage right, salary. Exactly. That is not how they are paid in this country. She felt as if she was watching her and her family's dreams slip away. So that – so this is the – this is the story she's telling. This is the story. And I'm saying her father died in 2008, and I think the issue with the will was like how the house was disposed. So I wonder if her parents were together. I didn't find anything that they weren't. But it really wouldn't make sense because you live with your wife in your house. There's no risk of a problem with the ownership of the house because you're intestate. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's something weird about that. Uh, in 2009, while she's at BU, she interns for Ted Kennedy. In 2010, she gives a TED Talk. And in 2011, she graduates from BU. And you found something in 2011. Fourth in her class, by the way. Oh, Fourth really? And class. it was a very prestigious program yes. on public policy, I think. Yeah. It was really, I saw the program, I was like, wow, that's for reals. And in, in that same year, uh, you said she was... Interviewed by NPR. They got her comments on the death of Osama bin Laden. Right. So this is this is Sandy from the block. And in 2012, her house finally emerges from probate, and the mother sells the house for 300 grand. So let's wrap this up after the break and get to uh, her the, the rest of her story and a few other stories that uh, are a little more authentic and a little less well-known. This is... Monica Perez. Look, just put your little hand back in the cash register and give me my $2.75 back, please, Brad. On News 95.5 at AM 750 WSB. I am your libertarian voice on WSB Saturdays from 3 to 6. And uh, we are we're doing some fact checking on some of the stories of the most prominent and celebrated politicians of our time. And one of them is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I just went through her timeline and it, it just does not dovetail with her story that her brother just wowed her by throwing her hat into the the 10,000 person ring of people that the that the Bernie Sanders crowd was trying to find like some total unknown some bartender from the Bronx to unseat the establishment incumbents i say she is an established you know groomed establishment candidate and i say that because not only what we just talked about which will be on the propreport.com uh, on Wednesday, but the where we replay, we post these shows commercial free. She returned to, so she graduated from tw- in 2011 from BU uh, with honors, and it was a great program. She did a TED talk in 2010. She was uh, interviewed or asked her opinion on NPR in 2011. In 2013, she returns to BU as a speaker, where she's. Uh, her bio, mini bio there says she's the lead educational strategist at Gage Is Inc., uh, founder of Brook Avenue Press. She partnered with Sunshine Bronx Business Incubator to design entrepreneurial curricula for those interested in launching their own enterprise. Then she uh, worked for Bernie Sanders in 2016. Her mom moved to Florida at that time for tax reasons, which I think is funny. In 2017, uh, she was the 
the person of the year for the, I think, National Hispanic Institute. But the when did she do Standing Rock? Wasn't she, Binkley, wasn't she a... She was a Activist. protester. When was that? Was that 2016? I think it was 2016. All right. So, but her I, her legacy is that what she says is this bartender thing. She said, I was uh, I was a bartender. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And then uh, Trump said, well, she's just a bartender. Like, everybody feeds into this bartender thing. And I honestly believe they morphed the – it was a waitress, then it became bartender. I honestly believe because of the cool millennial vibe of the – uh, Austin guy on Jeopardy, who was this hip craft cocktail crafter and savant trivia yeah. champion. Yeah. W- one thing, her bio from back back in 2010, it doesn't say she's from the Bronx. Being from the Bronx was a main talking point when she emerged on the scene. It says she's from New York back then. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they changed. They they definitely embellished the story. But here's something, another thing that a, a news story, a uh, story from July of 2018, says uh, people talk smack uh, about Sandy when she was a bartender stealing their tips or something like that. So it's like, well, this is obviously not a fan of Ocasio who's writing this article. Yeah, it uh, says... Ex-co-worker, no fan of Democrat darling Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So they're interviewing this ex-co-worker who's complaining about how uh, Ocasio tipped out to the waitresses when she was the bartender. And there's usually rules about it. So it's – I mean, whatever. So so the story is against interest for Ocasio, right? So it looks like it's real because it's her enemy talking, but validating the underlying fact – that she was a bartender, it said, for four years at this Flats Fix restaurant, which was not open at that time. So it said she worked there from January 2014 to January 2018. But that location of the restaurant didn't open until 2015. That's nuts. So, I mean, it is possible that she was at the old – I don't know. But at no point does it ever say anything but that she worked at that place in that spot – and I actually don't know if I saw that it, she worked there for, for four years anyplace else. But this is – so this is the, the story that she had this amazing resume when she went back to speak at BU in 2013. She was – she had three positions in 2013, the lead educational strategist, the founder of Brook Avenue Press, and she was a partner in this entrepreneurial incubator. Plus, she had been a Ted Kennedy intern. I mean, she was – she was the real deal. Yeah. Could and get a job anywhere. Right. So this is a, a very cultivated, experienced, well-trained person with internships. She's person of the year. You should see the picture. She's so well-groomed. Really, really fantastic. And you've seen her act like that. So say what you got to say, but then I want the, the clip. I She's very good at what she does. She's a trained politician, and it's just all of these things are great and fine. I don't have any problem with it. The problem I have is that the myth they create about her is is leaving a false impression on people who are donating massive amounts of money to to, to her, who are getting um, being led to support policy or whatever she's putting out there. I don't like that they lie to people. Is the problem I have? Yes, and they're doing it because they know that anybody. In the establishment, groomed in the political arts cannot be trusted or they will look at them differently and wonder what they're really after, how you're being manipulated because they are taught how to do that. And and 
we who go to public schools are not taught how to do that. We're taught how to never taught rhetoric or how to influence people. That was the great difference between classical education and modern education is they took that rhetoric part out. They didn't take it out of the elite private schools or even some of the elite, very elite public schools, but they did take it out for the rank and file. So we're we're supposed to believe that she's an aw shucks candidate, a who me candidate, <laughs> and that you can that she's just learning as she goes, and we're going along for the ride. And if you don't believe that this is what she is doing, listen to this is a she makes these little videos of herself doing other stuff, which I consider to be absolutely what you can't stop for five seconds. You know, she's like cooking dinner. And telling you her important thoughts about climate change and, by the way, (laughs) don't have any children while she's cooking dinner with a giant knife. I'm like, really? Like, I don't even – my kids are talking to me. I'm like, sorry, I'm using a knife. (laughs) 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 Don't talk to me right now. This knife is very sharp. I mean, it's not – that's not totally true. But certainly if I'm doing the dishes right, like I stop what I do, I'm doing and listen to them. And she won't even do that. But this, she really takes it too far in this one. She's sitting on the floor putting together – and uh, an Ikea table, the great the democratization of furniture, Ikea, drinking white wine and eating popcorn, which Ugh. I will say, no, it's dog whistling. And I absolutely have thought of this many times. My sister said to another single white female some years ago, uh, they were I introduced them, whatever, and they were talking about the things they had in common. And my sister said to her. White wine and popcorn, am I right? And the other chick said, every night. Really? Yep, because you can get high, get food. It's like how you can get your little buzz with the least amount of calories. (laughs) Yeah, I'm dead serious. It's getting your buzz with the least amount of calories. So it fills your stomach, and you can kind of bulk up on that so you, like, don't feel sick. I'm telling you, it's an absolute dog whistle. And there's a few dog whistles in here, but the fact you can hear – She's chewing with her mouth open. There's literally food falling down her face. I mean, it's unreal that a person uh, with this kind of pedigree would behave like this in public as a congressional representative other than as a as a show. So let's hear the clip. It's clip two. I'm coming at you from my apartment in D.C. that has still not been furnished. It's. So I got sworn in January 3rd. I can't even listen to it. Today is April something. And I still don't own a chair. Until today, when I got a folding chair delivered to my apartment. Oh, it just says wine and popcorn are almost all I eat when Daniel is gone. We have something in common. She's reading questions. I've been living like a completely depraved lifestyle i've been sleeping on a mattress on the floor but it's like the mattress and then under the mattress is like the plastic wrap that the mattress (laughs) came in i'm just spilling all the secrets right now so so most of the people are commenting like she's an idiot right but it's not that she's an idiot she's most definitely not an idiot because all the little Instagram things like, oh, M, gosh, me too. Oh, my gosh, that's me. Oh, my gosh, every night, you know. A little She's... less chewing. Dude, it's disgusting. It's unbelievable. Are we going to see her cutting her toenails in the next oh, one? Oh, like, 
don't go too far. Don't go too far. You know, I don't like that. So with all of this, I hardly have any time to call your attention to two people who uh, put two positive stories that I want to highlight as authentic people. So one thing I just tweeted, retweeted my when I laid out the Kate Steinle story, the woman who got shot on the pier in San Francisco, she, that story, I could tell from absolutely the first day it came out that it was being misrepresented in the public. And I felt if there was any justice that that guy would not get convicted. I mean, that story is unbelievable. Before, before he even went to trial, I was all over it. And I, I tweeted the episode at Monica Perez show just this week. So you can go back and look at it, but listen to it because it's very interesting what the sheriff did to get that guy into California and then release him. He literally had to get him away from immigration who was going to deport him. And it wasn't under the rules of sanctuary city or anything like that. So this guy was like uh, mentally incompetent and the story is just crazy. So when I saw that he was being defended by a public defender, I thought, well, they have to be true blue, like really good guys if they're going to defend him properly. But he, if they do, he should get off. And I tried to contact them. They didn't answer me. So I didn't have high hopes. But he was he was he was not convicted. And then I read about. Well, then I recently heard that the public defender, the guy, the elected official in charge of the public defender's office died under suspicious circumstances recently. So then I dug into him, and boy, does that guy have a backstory. He fought the machine to get this elected position. Willie Brown tried to his he was number two in the public defender's office in San Francisco, like in 2002, and his boss got promoted to a different job. So there was an elected position open. Somebody had to fill that temporarily, and Willie Brown put a, uh, a state senator's daughter in there, and she immediately fired this guy. And he really should have been promoted to that position. So he came back and ran against her for the position that year, and he won. And he has not been a darling of the establishment ever since then, that's for sure. But since then, he's really fought for some very important measures that people on both sides of the aisle would appreciate. And uh, he's also a documentary filmmaker who made a full-length documentary called Ricochet about the Steinle case, which I cannot find now. And the guy is dead under suspicious circumstances. But he fought – he wanted public employees to put more money in pensions. What's his name again? Jeff Adachi. Jeff Adachi. Did I not say Jeff Adachi? And uh, what he did really – the stuff he did, I can't cover it. Uh, Well, I'll, I'll get to a little bit more after the break. This is Monica Perez. Monica Perez. No, never give up, never surrender. On News 95.5 and AM 750 WSB. Wrapping it up, I just want to finish with Jeff Adachi, who was the San Francisco public defender and during the Steinle case. He he recorded, he set up crime scene, a trap, I guess, I don't know, or just, uh, and recorded police officers stealing from a crime scene in San Francisco. And he also caught a medical examiner lying about something on the stand. And these are the people who were responsible for the investigation into his suspicious death. And so obviously, I don't know about obviously nothing, but 
Nothing's come of it. There's no foul play was determined. And another guy who I think should be on your radar, Ross Ulbricht. There's still hope for him. He's just in jail serving double life plus 40 years with no chance of parole for establishing the new Silk Road website. And he's in jail because they say that he dealt drugs. or Oh, no, that it was a neutral platform, but that drugs were dealt on it and people died from those drugs. However, the DEA agent and the Secret Service guy who uh, were investigating that case were tried and convicted and sentenced to six years each for malfeasance in that case. And Ross Ulbricht's jury was not allowed to see that. So he was wow. convicted basically for these deaths. That's dark web guy, right? Uh, Silk yeah, Road, dark yeah. web? Yes. So he's in a maximum security prison, and there is a movement to free Ross to get Trump to commute his sentence. And I, I will make the commitment that I will never criticize Trump in any way whatsoever, which could end my career. <laughs> um, not because I made a career on it, but it ties your hands with the sitting president if he were to commute Ross Ulbricht's sentence. Uh, so look into that. I highly recommend, uh, at least trying to save Ross and listening to our shows, our podcast, you can get it all at the com. And I do thank WSB for letting us put this up, uh, commercial free and our podcast is commercial free. This show comes up on Wednesdays. And the podcast that I do with Binkley comes up on Thursdays. And with that, thank you. And talk to you next week right here on WSB Saturdays from 3 to 6. This is Monica Perez.